0: Hi everyone, welcome to our 41st episode of the Podcast Against Disease, where Kavita and I talk to Sunal Makadia about heart disease and how the coronavirus pandemic is affecting heart health. We talk about how you can protect yourself and those around you to keep your heart and blood vessels going, whether you catch COVID or not. We also talk about the signs that you should consider emergencies. On the more hopeful side, we talk about how you can exercise safely during the pandemic. Hope you enjoy.
1: Welcome to the Podcast Against Disease, brought to you by Humanity Against Disease. I am one of your hosts, Kavita Chapla.
0: And I am Cody Weston.
1: Today, we have the intense pleasure of talking to Dr. Sanal Makadia, who also happens to be my brother-in-law, who is a cardiologist. He and I both trained at the same internal medicine residency program at Johns Hopkins Bayview, so that's another great connection. He's now working at LifeBridge Health in Baltimore, and he is a non-invasive cardiologist, which means he doesn't go in to do procedures on people who have heart attacks or things like that. And he is the director of the Heart Failure Program and the Sports Cardiology Program at LifeBridge. It's so great to have you, sonal. Thank you for having me.
0: And if I may jump in here, I I find a philosophical qualm with defining you by what you don't do. So can you fill us uh, in a little bit more on what a non-invasive cardiologist does? Um, Yeah, sure. So I guess things are very different compared to what they were,
2: you know, 50, 100 years ago when doctors kind of did everything and now in this day, in 2020, things tend to be very hyper-specialized. So what I do as a non-invasive cardiologist is pretty much everything in terms of managing a patient's heart conditions, diagnosing heart disease in its various forms. Certainly we focus on prevention, but we do all these. We manage patients without being involved with the procedural aspect of cardiology. So what that means is that I I do not do invasive catheterizations of patients. If if, uh, your listeners have heard of patients getting stents, That is done with uh, an interventional cardiologist. Um, I will not put in pacemakers, but we certainly help manage patients who have pacemakers. So anything outside of doing surgical or procedural work is typically what a non-invasive
0: cardiologist would do. Okay. Thanks for going over that for us. I often think of these kinds of med management-based specialties as being this whole stitch-in-time-saves-nine kind of thing. If you'd humor me for a second... What's your sense of how much emergent cardiology can be prevented by ideal preventative maintenance?
2: Yeah, so it's actually an interesting question. So when we talk about prevention, right, so we have to take a step back. In the U.S., I think last time I looked at some of this data, the CDC has some of this too, but cardiovascular care still is the number one cause of death and disability in this country costs about a billion dollars a day. And what we think is that by using all the tools that we have at hand, anywhere between 75 to 80% of heart disease, which includes strokes, can be preventable. Wow.
0: And that sounds in line with what I would have estimated being kind of an outsider to the field. So I I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind, uh, especially when we're trying to send this message that people can do a lot for their own health is that engaging with primary care and with preventative uh, cardiology and non-invasive cardiology, we might be able to make some major gains and prevent some real tragedies.
2: Yeah, certainly. I mean, every every year I feel like we are, we're learning new things on what is a contributor to cardiovascular disease. Primary care cardiologists, patients themselves can play a big role in early identification easy lifestyle changes, especially in the United States, we have much higher rates of coronary disease, stroke compared to um, other developed countries. So there's some public health implications for this as well, but there's uh, so much we can do and we're learning more about how to identify this early.
0: That's exciting from the standpoint of preventing emergencies and saving the system money and saving people a lot of grief. What we were hoping to focus on today is This uh, illness that I imagine a few of our listeners have heard of at this point, COVID-19, and how it uh, relates to heart disease in terms of the later consequences and also what people with pre-existing heart disease should be thinking about. Sunal, I was wondering, when COVID started to affect your patients and how you deliver your care and what the first signs were that things were not going to be ordinary,
2: We had, in this country, the benefit of kind of hearing and understanding the experiences of of other countries in COVID-19 several weeks before we were hit with the first cases of COVID. So we heard data coming out of China earlier as that spread to Eastern, Western Europe. Really, Western Europe is where we got some of our first uh, clinical information. We learned very surprisingly, and this is this bore out in the data coming out of the U.S. later, too, is that the rates of patients going into the hospital with cardiac concerns, nothing related to COVID-19, but cardiac issues, what we call myocardial infarctions or heart attacks, mm-hmm. um, the, the more severe kinds of heart attacks, those rates were way down, both in, in Europe and we saw that here, too. And I certainly we saw that just anecdotally with our health system. We saw patients accessing the emergency room at much lower rates than we anticipated. Hospital systems, I know we did in Baltimore, we kind of braced for COVID-19 and, and we did a lot of structural interventions to get the hospital ready for, for the potential surge of patients to offload some of our inpatient wards. And then we found that our inpatient wards at much lower census than we normally you would see and that was very alarming initially we didn't know why we were seeing that where patients did not being as active or engaging in some of the riskier behaviors because of social isolation recommendations certainly we hoped that could have been the case but the fear was is that patients were reluctant to seek medical care initially for fear of contracting the virus and we're starting to understand that that very well could have been the case more one of the more common things we see in the hospital, coronary disease, congestive heart failure these patients were not being seen as often in, in the hospital. and we saw very alarming data that out of hospital, cardiac arrests in Italy really surged during the time of early COVID, 40 to 60 percent of increased rates of people suffering cardiac arrest outside of the hospital. Wow so that was very alarming. I think we haven't seen similar numbers like that in the U.S., but we certainly have seen decrease in hospital volumes, and we hope that patients are understanding now to not delay care, right? If they have a cardiac issue or other issue that needs attention to, we now have infrastructure across the country for telemedicine that at least they can access the medical care they would need so that we can really prevent a lot of this disease that's preventable or intervene earlier so that we're not left with uh, some of the outcomes.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a little scary to think about because this is something that is probably going to bear out more subtly over years because of all these missed opportunities for intervention. I know that what you're describing is exactly what I saw in terms of people delaying psychiatric care. There was a period in er- the early COVID phase where the psychiatric ED was a ghost town compared to what we were seeing. And so was the entire emergency department. I mean, granted the overwhelming majority of cases had something to do with COVID or were things that were so emergent, they couldn't possibly have waited, but it is, um, it's disturbing because
2: it's very disturbing. Yeah. I mean, it's just anecdotally. I had a patient who, um, and needed a valve replacement and he had, severe symptoms of, of something called aortic stenosis where one of the valves in the heart essentially closes in on itself and it's very hard for the heart for the heart to pump blood out. Mm-hmm. And when this happens, you know, patients need to get that valve open very quickly. And of course the surgeries were delayed or put on hold. Yeah. Um, no fault of the patient. And so elective procedures and technically valve replacements are considered to be elective procedures. This was on hold and I had this patient literally walk into the office on death's door struggling to breathe thankfully we were able to give him a new valve pretty quickly but these are patients that would have in other in normal circumstances certainly have access to the emergency room and he himself told us that he did not want to go to the hospital yeah. i'm sure that's just one case out of several but the good part is i think things have reopened patient patients are understanding a little bit more about the importance of preventative care
0: and the access has improved significantly now. Absolutely. And I'm hoping, and I've said this on some other or in some other context that this breakthrough in terms of how much telemedicine we're rolling out and how quickly we're discovering and troubleshooting the problems is ultimately going to be a good thing when COVID is under control.
1: I feel like I would love to keep seeing some patients through telemedicine visits uh, because they struggle so much to make it into clinic for multiple reasons—transportation or their work hours—and and I feel like there have definitely been some improvements in healthcare and silver linings with COVID, and so I'm hoping that we can keep some of those innovations. So you've told us a little bit about how patients with heart disease may have been affected by COVID, and their fears about going to the emergency room. But what are some of the ways that COVID infection can actually affect the heart of either somebody who has heart disease or somebody who is otherwise healthy?
2: I guess we can talk about this in two parts. One is which patients tend to be at risk or why are uh, which heart patients tend to be at risk for the severe symptoms. At least right now, we don't think that heart patients are more likely to acquire the illness any more than anybody else, but we do know that patients with certain cardiovascular risk factors tend to have higher rates of experiencing severe symptoms of COVID-19. And that doesn't necessarily have to be heart symptoms. Pulmonary uh, manifestations of COVID-19 are the most dramatic, and the rates of severe bilateral pneumonias or other things that we see with severe COVID-19 certainly affect the patients that have certain risk factors. So diabetes was one that we saw that we're still seeing in the clinical population mm-hmm. high blood pressure, patients who have had pre-existing cardiac disease, like congestive heart failure or coronary disease. But it's not, re- it's not restricted to patients with only heart conditions, patients who have kidney disease or who have autoimmune disease, certain types of cancers. These are patients that are high, high, high risk for the
0: severe symptoms. And that is something that I remember being a big concern early on, Because we didn't know who did and didn't have to worry about getting this. I know there was a concern about asthma. There was the the big Mm -hmm. question about like, okay, is it going to affect kids? Is it going to affect older people? Is it going to affect people in their prime? And it is good that we're starting to wrap our heads around who needs to be more cautious. And I heard some preventable and manageable illnesses there, which it does sound like there may be some gain to be made in just good routine medicine, making sure that people don't have like completely out of control blood sugars, for example? Oh,
2: certainly. I think access to your routine medical care is, is crucial for even patients that have those, those underlying issues to make sure that they're well managed, make sure that they have a uh, connection with their primary care doctor um, or their specialist who's managing their care. COVID has just shined a light on how important preventative care really is. And then, Kavita, you asked about how COVID itself affects the heart. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I'll preface this by saying most of what we know about COVID nineteen and how it affects the heart comes from hospitalized patients. We don't yet know how it affects the heart, and if it does, and if so, in what levels does it affect the heart in patients who are have either have mild symptoms, no symptoms, or have symptoms that did not require hospitalization. From what we've seen with hospitalized patients, we know. COVID-19 as a viral infection causes cardiac injury at much higher rates than other similar viruses. That injury, we think it could be due to a variety of different reasons. So there's, there's three schools of thought, I guess three pathways in which we can see this cardiac injury. One is through direct infection of the cardiac muscle cell by the virus itself. We do know um some autopsy studies like covid can infect the heart cells and we've seen some studies published that they found evidence of coronavirus inside inside cardiac myocytes hmm. inside the the heart muscle cells so we think that that could lead to inflammation of the heart muscle something called myocarditis so that's one mechanism the second which i believe is probably more common is what we call systemic inflammation the body's response to getting to being infected with the virus. This is what ends up leading to the more severe symptoms
0: that we see. So that most of the lung symptoms have a lot to do with that immune overreaction, right? If they get severe.
2: Correct. That's what we think, right? It's the the body's initial response to the infection, it it well, it comes in a couple of phases, but what the body tries to do is mount an immune response, which it will do to any infection that it encounters. And there are, there's something about COVID-19 that causes a hyperimmune response, for lack of a better term, uh, in kind of overproduction of inflammation in the body. This inflammation is what is what we think could be leading to this muscle injury. It makes it harder for the heart to utilize oxygen. It makes it harder for the lungs to actually bring in oxygen to the bloodstream, and, and that is what we think the predominant reason for the cardiac injury that we're seeing is. okay. Less less likely, but certainly something that we've seen in practice is patients have underlying coronary disease or have mild plaque in the heart. This inflammation we know is associated with causing this plaque to become unstable, and that can lead to frank heart attacks, Hmm. something called acute coronary syndrome. The second thing that we've seen is that because of this inflammation, and some people have underlying tendencies, but to, to develop this, but inflammatory response can is having much higher rates of people forming blood clots. It's, you know, we've seen young patients with blood clots like DVTs or pulmonary emboli, and major blood clots that are in the lungs can lead to excess stress on the heart, and we can see that
0: in the blood work. Yeah, and that's that's terrifying, and for people who are less familiar with vascular disease, um, uh, pulmonary embolism is basically clots of blood getting stuck in the lungs. DVTs are clots of blood getting uh, stuck in deep veins.
1: It sounds like there's also rare instances where it can affect the conduction system in the heart and cause abnormal heart rhythms or arrhythmias. And then with heart attacks, do you have a sense of whether COVID causes heart attacks or it puts people who have heart disease in bad situations where they're more prone to have a heart attack?
2: There is some data coming out that COVID-19 can impact the electrical system of the heart. We think this is most likely because there's ongoing inflammation of the heart that we mentioned before, myocarditis. This can lead to dangerous rhythms of the heart atrial fibrillation, it can lead to what we call ectopy or extra heartbeats that people can feel as palpitations, feeling like their heart's racing or skipping a beat. We certainly can see very dangerous heart rhythms called ventricular tachycardia or ventricular circulation that can lead to some patients dying. The other mechanism is, of course, with the lung issues that can happen, the, the pneumonias, the low oxygen has been a crucial symptom of this. And low oxygen in any setting makes the heart more likely to develop arrhythmias. So certainly, I think both of those things can, can cause this. The second part of your question was about heart attacks or patients who have coronary disease, correct? Right. Mm-hmm. So I think, again, this probably comes in two flavors. One is if patients have pre-existing plaque, that inflammation, that drive of inflammation, we know is a risk factor for making this plaque go from a stable plaque to an unstable plaque. And that unstable plaque can rupture or it can form a very acute obstruction of blood flow into the heart. And that's what we call a heart attack. That's not necessarily just due to COVID. I think it's because of the inflammation that we see. And we see that in other inflammatory settings as well. The second part is a little more nuanced, I think. So some patients who have coronary disease may not have needed a stent or may not have needed bypass surgery, they may have like a 40 or a 60% blockage in one of the heart arteries. Typically, this does not cause any symptoms, but in a very stressful situation, so if the body is not getting enough oxygen or there's a lot of inflammation or there's low blood pressure, it creates a mismatch between how much oxygen the heart needs to pump and how much oxygen it's actually getting. Hmm. And we see signs of the heart struggling to get enough energy, get enough oxygen um, in the blood work. Now we can see this cardiac injury because of this. So patients not necessarily need to have a heart attack in order for us to see cardiac injury. We can see it in both of these settings.
0: If you think of it like any other kind of plumbing, you might have some screwed up pipes that work just fine under all the normal conditions. But if you start throwing uh, other insults in there, weird stuff going through the pipes um, as COVID would qualify. Yeah, I think the plumbing analogy is spot on.
2: So the signs or symptoms that we certainly, that we think are red flags, that patients should definitely call their doctor, seek medical opinion, any shortness of breath, chest discomfort, palpitations, I think is a big one, feeling like your heart's racing or skipping a beat. Lightheadedness, dizziness, and then more subtle symptoms too that patients may not may, may not realize they're experiencing. So, if they're finding that they're getting out of breath more quickly with certain activities, such as going upstairs or carrying um, groceries into their house or taking out the trash, if they're feeling that they have to stop and catch their breath, or our patients who are um, and, and we're going to get to exercise soon, but the patients who do exercise, if they're finding out they can't, they have less stamina than before. Hmm. If the heart rate doesn't recover as quickly as they would anticipate, or they can't keep up with the times that they would they were normally accustomed to any kind of muscle pains, I think that's another red flag we think we don't know, but myologists muscle pains could be a sign that you know the heart's a muscle it could also be affected okay and yeah. obviously the the yeah. fever the cough the you know the the typical symptoms that that we um that we hear about with covid nineteen loss of some you know smell or taste, fever sore throat et cetera
0: okay. Yeah, it sounds like it's got to be so hard to pin this down because so many of those symptoms are things you're going to see with any number of things.
2: Yeah, and especially now that we're coming up on flu season. I think a lot of this is going to overlap. It's going to make our jobs very challenging. Yeah,
0: my only hope for that is that the fact that everybody's already in social distancing and hand washing mode theoretically might lower the flu uh, transmission. Yeah, I saw this interesting, I don't know if you saw this too, but it looked like the Southern Hemisphere, I saw the
2: there was an economist article, but the Southern Hemisphere had much lower rates of flu this year. Usually they're much higher. It might be kind of what you were talking about, that because of all the social isolation and hygiene, etc., that we may get a much lower rate of the flu.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I do think and hope that we're going to normalize some different practices. Like, I don't think in five years it's going to be all that odd to see people wearing masks around flu season.
1: I agree with you guys. I I also read that article by The Economist. And I think it is logical that if people are not really around each other or not coughing or sneezing near each other, then there might be fewer people getting the flu this year. So, Sonal, you described some of the symptoms that might tell somebody that they have COVID-19 or a serious heart condition or both, what advice would you have for somebody who either has other blockages in their heart, has had stents, or somebody who is healthy but is feeling a lot of chest pain or feeling like their heart is skipping a beat? What would your flow be for recommending who they contact and when in terms of when should they go to the emergency room immediately? When should they try and call their primary care doctor or their cardiologist? What are the things that could be done uh, in the clinic or in a telemedicine visit versus what are things that they would just need to go to the hospital for?
2: Guidelines that are in place, you know, prevention is the best medicine, right? I think I'm sure Mm -hmm. you guys have covered this on previous episodes, but it's, it's Practicing our social distancing, good hand hygiene, making smart decisions, and if you have a particular concern, as my rule of thumb, what I've been telling patients is that if, if this is something that you would have ordinarily called nine one one for, or you would have gone to your local emergency room for, then I wouldn't necessarily delay going to the going to seek urgent care. We do not want you second guessing, right? We don't. I've had patients say, "Yeah, I had a little." shortness of breath and or had this burning in in the chest and you know i I figured it was nothing or you know i was too worried about contracting covid19 in the local er but it turning out that it actually was a you know a major cardiac symptom i think we have to listen to our bodies but i i totally understand the concern that patients have of going to the hospital you know these are places that have the highest um, prevalence rates of covid right these are COVID patients are going. So I, I totally understand that. Yeah. Um, most hospitals, I know certainly um, here in Baltimore, have put in place established protocols. Um, they're doing rigorous cleaning. They have isolation to help to limit the spread. And at least the prelim data that we've seen is that the hospital is not a major source of contracting COVID 19. There are some cases that people have had, who have contracted COVID from work, but it's not a major source of patient to patient transmission.
0: That's an encouraging thing to hear. And I think what I've seen so far in the hospital is that practices are so aggressive in terms of trying to control spread. I feel like if it was gonna be a major source, we'd be seeing a lot more healthcare providers coming down with it. And it's awful that anyone in the healthcare field is coming down with it in the course of their work but I am somewhat encouraged that a lot of people who've been spending months in the emergency departments and various medicine wards have been able to avoid contracting it uh, even when they're there 60, 70, 80 hours a week.
2: Right, yeah, no, I think you said it right. Most hospitals are kind of going over and above what the CDC is recommending in terms of personal protective equipment, distance, et cetera. The impact that COVID has had on elderly patients who've been hospitalized. Hmm. This is just anecdotal,
0: uh-huh. but
2: um, I've I found it—it's probably very frightening to go in the hospital if you're elderly to begin with, and being socially isolated in the hospital and what their impact was. Because you know they may have hearing issues; it's impossible to hear through a mask. Yeah, nurses aren't going in checking on these patients as routinely as they normally would. Yeah, um, it must be. It must create a whole host of other you know kind of. Traumatic stress for some of these patients.
0: Yeah, and you make a good point. I mean, there's data going back to long before COVID that putting somebody on contact isolation significantly reduces the um, amount of effort. Well, I guess effort might not be the right word, but the amount of face time they're getting with providers because it's just adding another barrier. And yeah, we're going to be speaking with Karen Swartz on the topic of. COVID and mental health, but it would be really interesting. Oh, that'd be very interesting. Yeah. It would be really interesting to get some more voices on that, especially, uh, as you say, with geriatric patients, with ICU patients.
1: Just taking care of patients in the hospital as a resident and now as a fellow, it is definitely a scary environment for them because they are sick. They are completely depersonalized, all the things that give their identity to them, the people around them, what they wear, you know, their belongings. Those are out of the picture and they can't even talk to their family regularly. So it is very challenging for people in the hospital right now. I feel like a lot of people just really wanted to to get out and go home and be with their families again. Going back to what you're telling us about getting care for heart disease and symptoms to look out for, I had one other question to ask you, and that is if somebody has an injury to their heart from COVID, whether that is a heart attack or an abnormal heart rhythm or heart failure when their heart isn't able to pump as good as it normally does, if that has a flare-up, is there any difference or nuance to the way that we treat patients with those different heart conditions, or is it still the standard treatment that somebody who has a heart attack or somebody who has a, a bunch of fluid buildup in their body because of heart failure?
2: That's a, hard, that's a tough question. We don't know, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately. We do think that aside from a couple of very rare forms of myocarditis, time is the best medicine for this inflammation of the heart muscle, whether that leads to congestive heart failure or weakening of the heart muscle typically tends to resolve without any specific treatment. Hospitals are now using certain medications that have shown some promise. So I know there's some data on steroids, there's some antivirals that are reserving for the sickest patients. These are the the sickest patients often have signs of heart damage going on too. So are we making that better with some of these medications? It's possible, we don't know. It would be very interesting to see if people have damage to their heart, what implications does that have in the long term? And we won't know that until years from now, probably. But we're seeing there are some patients who have had COVID, whether it's mild or moderate, even if it's mild or moderate, even with no symptom, that they have evidence of heart involvement months later on a cardiac MRI. We don't know why that's the case. We don't know what implication that would be. But it's at much higher rates than we anticipate.
1: So it sounds like there's a lot of things that we don't know yet, but doctors and cardiologists are trying to treat people with whatever is available and then also treat them with the normal medications and treatments for these different conditions.
2: Going back to what you were saying before, like what should patients do if they are having any kind of heart issues? I think predominantly most providers across the country now are doing telemedicine. It makes it very straightforward to call, even if you haven't seen a specialist ever before. If you haven't seen a heart doctor before, if you don't have a heart doctor, most cardiology practices are are taking new patients, even the telemedicine route. So you can do a video appointment with some of these doctors. Most of the time, they'll have people come in for an EKG, if that's indicated. And this is done in a very safe, socially distant manner for most practices. So I, I would urge your listeners not to hesitate to seek medical care. In many aspects, the access to care has gotten much better with COVID-19 because of telemedicine and the benefits that it can provide. So for their patients that are able to do telemedicine.
1: I agree with you. I think telemedicine has really opened up a lot of possibilities for people to have safe visits that they feel comfortable with and still talk to their doctors and talk to them pretty quickly. I think because of COVID, there are a lot of shifts with clinic schedules, and I feel like there are still always same-day urgent appointments available for patients to see their doctors and talk about things that come up. Thank you for that very thorough discussion of COVID and heart disease. Now we'll turn to something that is relevant to us all, and that is exercise. So now I want to hear your thoughts more on What are these new things that you and your patients and all of us are thinking about in terms of exercise? I know that most of us are now at home, so we're not as active as we normally are, so that's different. And then there are also effects that COVID can have on people's ability to exercise. So what is your sort of overview of this new landscape that we're in?
2: Yeah, it's a broad topic. I would say that we shouldn't forget What we talked about in the beginning, right? Cardiac disease, cardiovascular disease, whether that's coronary disease, heart attacks, strokes, this is still the number one driver of death in the US. Even when we add in COVID-19 in the end of 2020, cardiovascular disease will still be the number one cause. And like we said before, a majority of this is preventable. And of that, lifestyle changes, right? More exercise, healthier diets, that is kind of our backbone of treatment, even though it's not pills, it's it's still treatment that we can, we can affect patients' health using these rather simple interventions. So I, I would encourage people to, as long as they're not actively sick, as long as they don't have signs of infection, not necessarily with COVID, but with, of anything, as long as they're in good physical condition to exercise, that to make sure that that is something that they are trying to make time for. There are recommendations from like the American Heart Association that will say if people are able at least 150 minutes of exercise per week of moderate intensity, honestly, and if you're someone who has not exercised in a while, any type of activity to get the heart rate up, to get the blood pumping will automatically, it it has tremendous impact, not just on cardiovascular health, but mental health and, and other things as well. So I think you shouldn't lose sight of the benefits of exercise. So, I encourage all of my patients, you know, even if they're at home, even if the gyms are closed, there's still walking you can do. There's exercise at the home you can do. There's a lot of virtual platforms that will teach you exercise, right?
1: That is so true. And not only the benefits of the exercise, but the dangers of sitting and uh, not moving much at all. Cody, I hope you remember our podcast uh, investigation of the dangers of sitting a long time ago. Oh, yeah, we, we found a lot of studies talking about how just spending a lot of your day sitting can cause you to die earlier and develop heart disease and other diseases. So Sinel, what guidance do you have for people who are trying to be active and in this COVID pandemic where a lot of activities that they would normally turn to, like going to the gym or playing team sports or, or things like that, are not as much of an option. What are ways that people can safely exercise outdoors and indoors?
2: It's it's the, it, most these sports and exercise modalities fall on a spectrum, right? Highest risk of, of spread of COVID and, and low risk. So, obviously, being by yourself, exercising by yourself and not Around other people puts you at the lowest risk so usually we recommend exercising outdoors whether that's walking jogging running biking whatever it is that you that you enjoy would probably be the lowest risk and still give you that sense still give you the all the benefits of exercise i always urge people to to be safe right so if you're in a family where the exposures are similar across the family and you want to work out with a, with a spouse or a, or a sibling, that could certainly be an avenue that people can, can do to limit the risk of contracting the infection. Running outdoors is safer than running indoors. We still recommend the social distancing and actually with exercise, well, most people are recommending to double the distance. So instead of six six feet to do 12, at least maybe longer if you're biking, hmm. Um, certainly don't draft. If you're in an area where there's a lot of bikers, if there's a lot of runners, then don't draft, you know, don't be directly behind the person. Common sense, I think, I think can go a long way here. Team sports, I guess it's very, it's very ta- challenging. I don't think there's a right answer. The more people that are, that you're around, the more people that, You're you could be exposed to, and it's not necessarily the person you're playing basketball with that day. It could be all the other contacts that that person has had over the last four to seven days of the incubation period that could have been positive. So, more people, I think, probably keep it simple. The more people you're around, higher the risk is to yourself contracting it. The more of an enclosed space you're in, obviously, the higher higher that risk. And you know, certain precautions. If you're able to wear a mask, certainly would recommend that. It's challenging, but not impossible to exercise with a mask. We certainly have patients coming in and doing stress tests. And although many find it challenging, it does not impede, contrary to some of the news reports, does not impede oxygen exchange, does not cause carbon dioxide retention, it can cause some claustrophobia. But from what we're seeing, it should not impede most exercise.
1: That is Um, excellent to hear because in a stress test, a person is very highly monitored, their oxygen level, their heart rate, everything is monitored. So it is great that you can dispel that myth today.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I remember seeing all the news articles about um, all these, uh, there was like a doctor who ran a marathon with like 10 masks on or some such just to prove the point. (laughs) (laughs) And there are new, I guess,
1: innovations coming out.
2: I know Under Armour is coming out with an exercise mask. I'm sure Amazon's going to have a bunch available. I think just being smart about it. If you happen to be indoors, right, take your own towel with you if you're at a gym, wipe down equipment before and after each use, sanitizer, et cetera.
1: And I also think about how different activities, like you said, have different risk levels. Playing tennis with somebody across the court would be much less risky than a contact sport like touch football or wrestling or something like that. So I guess there are ways that people can be creative and still play sports, but in a safe way.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's probably not the time to organize your like backyard kumite or something like that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No rugby scrums.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Sinal, what would your recommendations be if someone, despite all these precautions, they have somehow contracted COVID-19. What would you say they should do in terms of when it's safe to return to exercise? What modifications they should be thinking about? And if there's any difference based on whether they have symptoms or whether they were asymptomatic but positive?
2: There's been some guidelines that have been issued by kind of expert consensus in the American College of Cardiology um. other places about about this specifically, and, and of course, there's no data yet behind this, and we don't know exactly what risk it confers. The consensus, at least for now, would be that patients or people, not necessarily patients, but athletes who are having symptoms of COVID 19, if they if they're tested positive, and this goes actually for any any illness really, is that the recommendation if they're athletic, if they're you know either in competitive sports or even somewhat competitive recreational athletics, to not exercise while they're having symptoms of that infection. And that's kind of a blanket recommendation, right? We don't know what kind of involvement there is. Like we said before, all the data we have right now is from, most of the data we have right now is from hospitalized patients. We don't know if non-hospitalized patients are not, or have heart involvement or not. Okay. So that's where that kind of recommendation comes from. People who have had COVID and are completely asymptomatic, Mm-hmm. or have you know tested positive and are asymptomatic, or even tested positive and had mild symptoms. We kind of group these two together because, at least right now, we don't think that there is a high likelihood that these people are at any greater risk than the general population. These people should still not exercise while they're having symptoms. And then what most people are recommending is that for two weeks after they've recovered to not necessarily get back into activity. And that comes from what we saw before. That recommendation comes from the fact that if you've tested positive, you're not quite sure when you were actually infected. And we want to bring out if patients or if people are going to have that inflammatory surge that we talked about. Yeah, That usually happens about a week later. So we don't want people to exercise if they're bodies are going to mount this immune response because that's the highest risk um, of getting myocarditis and having the effects of myocarditis. That's where that additional two-week recommendation um, comes from. Once they've recovered, as long as they've had mild symptoms, anything kind of neck and above, right? So sinus congestion, sore throat, nasal symptoms, lack of uh, smell or taste, or no symptoms, as long as they've had mild symptoms restricted to the neck or above, these people don't necessarily need testing before they um, get back into activity. They okay. should be very vigilant about any symptoms, any red flags, right? So easy fatigue, shortness of breath that's unexpected, uh, chest discomfort with exertion, lightheadedness, palpitations, et cetera, all the things that we talked about before, Any signs of that, you know, you immediately recommend that we stop exercise and and talk to your doctor about that. And then for most recreational athletes, if they've recovered fully, I think some of the newer data is suggesting that we should still probably be a little more cautious and have these patients at least see their medical doctor before getting kind of cleared to get back into exercise. And even when they do, just, just take things slow. It's a different recommendation if you start talking about collegiate athletes and professional athletes and return to play to these highly competitive fields. There are more strict recommendations that have been imposed of needing certain kinds of heart testing before you can go back into competitive athletics. That doesn't necessarily have to hold true for most people who just want to go out and resume their their daily jog. But I think just being cautious and being vigilant about the potential symptoms.
0: Okay. And yeah, a lot of these lessons come down to using the same kinds of vigilance with COVID that one would for uh, any other illness. So it is a little bit comforting that clinical common sense by and large seems to be applying here, which is good for those who've already been engaged with their healthcare and looking for warning signs and these kinds of things.
2: Yeah, actually, I I did an interview with runner's world magazine not that long ago and this was surprising to me but apparently and i i am in no shape a competitive athlete but i was surprised that how many people who consider themselves highly competitive athletes that if they're feeling under the weather for whatever reason they exercise they try to exercise it off wow and I didn't, I didn't realize that. reporter I was talking to, she's, and she was a, she's a triathlete herself, and she said, yeah, most people, if they have a cough or a fever, they, they'll run it off. And I think that can be very dangerous yeah. uh, with COVID.
1: And it seems like it's just really challenging right now for people to exercise safely and get moving, but then also to recognize that then if they did get COVID, they would have to slow down before they could ramp back up again.
2: Number one, I would be that to, to not hesitate to seek medical care if you if you think you need it. I mean, I think that's huge, and we're still seeing patients come in way beyond where they should have come in. You know, yeah. with either heart failure or anything else, right? Cancer, kidney disease, all, all sorts of stuff that's getting people are presenting way later. So that would be a one big take home: is just to look out for any symptoms, just be vigilant about your symptoms, and seek care early. If you have it and then certainly i think if you're if you're having symptoms to be tested and to just be just to practice all the social distancing the guidelines
0: and masking all of that to
2: help limit the spread is, is what we don't want is to let our guard down a lot of this is preventable
0: yeah sunal thank you very much for uh, sharing this information with us i think it's incredible how this one infectious disease has shaped basically every area of medicine and every area of life. And looking at it from this perspective, I I think gives us a lot of lessons that are going to be applicable long after.
2: Great. No, this is my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us, everyone. We hope you feel more prepared to keep your heart healthy, no matter what comes your way this year. We'd love to hear from you. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or send us an email at againstdisease at gmail.com.